tinfoil hat. Oh, what the fuck are you guys even talking about? Global controls will have to be imposed, and a world governing body will be created to enforce them. Welcome to tinfoil hat. We, we, we go deep, homeboy. Eric, open your mind. Drink. From the fountain of knowledge. There's lizard people everywhere. That's some interdimensional shit. Wake up, Aaron. This is only the beginning. Dude, you just blew my mind. Are you ready to get your mind blown? Revolution will be podcasted. Oh, it will be. It will be. Yeah, it will be. The Revolution will be podcast. Welcome to another fun festive episode of Tim Fall Hat. We go deep, homeboy. Uh, You know who I am. You know what I'm here to do. I'm here to rock, okay? Join me as always is my partner in crime, the one, the only, XG in the place to be, Xavier Guerrero. How's it going? I'm always wondering, if you're here to rock, what am I going to do? You're just here to just make sure the the train stays on the tracks. (laughs) Uh, thank you guys for tuning in. Thank you for all the kind words. A lot of amazing stuff uh, is going on in this world. Uh, we want to give a shout out to everybody. Come see our live shows. It's a great way to see us. Meet me, me, Eddie Bravo, XG, and whoever else is part of the community, the, uh, conspiracy slash truth community. Uh, we will be October 4th. We will be at the Gramercy in New York City. That's like the Grand Sea Theater, Tinfall Hat Comedy Live, a stand up comedy show and QA. XG will be there. Our good friend Lauren Petrie from the Electric Kool Aid podcast. She will also be a part of it. We plan to go hard in the paint with a f- after party at Creek in the Cave. After party that night after the show. So please come hang out, meet and greet, high fives, all the good stuff. That's what we're doing. And then we're at uh, Wise Guys. Right in Salt Lake City, it's uh, the three of us going hard in the paint. We're going to be doing uh, first time I've I, I don't know when the last time I was in Utah if I've ever been in Utah. You haven't been in Utah. Have you been to Utah? No, I haven't been. Okay, Utah. why are you acting like that's so weird? Because you've been everywhere. Okay, dude. You've I've been, been everywhere. Been out man. of the country, everywhere. I've, I've been everywhere. Yes. So that's very interesting. So I'm excited. I wish I, I hope Mormons would let me know if the Book of Mormon is offensive or not, so I can make. This fly. What date is that? Uh, let me look it up right now. Give me one second. Okay. Uh, Salt Lake City. I think it's the 17th. 19th. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you. October 19th. We are in Salt Lake. Come see us, Mormons. We love you. I, I will wear my special underpants. Okay? And then we have October 27th. We're in the main room, dude. It's a special uh, uh, once upon a time in the main room show. It's myself, Eddie Bravo, XG, Tim Dillon, and whoever else shows up, we will rock that. Today's show is brought to you by our good friends at BetDSI. Make those bets. Like if you're betting on the Raiders winning something, good luck with that. <laughs> Go to BetDSI, use the promo code HAT100. I still want to do conspiracy bets. I could have told you that whole Area 51 thing wasn't going to work out, but you didn't want to listen to me. Something else happened on that day. That fizzled out hard. It went from storming the place where the aliens are to a, a rave. It looked really lame. Yeah, I Some think people just said, I don't there. want meat yeah. aliens. I'll just smoke DMT and talk to aliens. So uh, 
Bet DSI for all your bet needs. You got the UFC, uh, NBA's about starting the week. Glory, glory, hallelujah. NFL, baseball playoffs around the corner. Uh, WNBA, I'm sure you can get some of that WNBA action if you want it. Huh? Just use the promo code HAT100 and get some. This one's for the children. Okay? Anything else? Oh, the t-shirts are rocking. We got all the t-shirts. Go tinfallhattshirts.com. It's a great way to support the show. We got the Tinfall Hat Texas Comedy Massacre, Steal Your Face, uh, Tinfall Hat Skull Uniform, Unicorn, all available, dude. And then the Patreon's on fire. Patreon.com backslash Tinfall Hat. Anywhere from an hour to three hours of extra bonus stuff. Q&A with me. I answer your questions every Sunday on AMA Sunday Fun Days. That's what I do because I'm this show, Tinfoil Hat, it's for the people. My new show came back. What do you mean? Twerking with politics. Twerking with politics is back. It might be a little bit too much for everybody. (laughs) So basically, I'm at 66,600 subscribers. And so people's heads are exploding because I put out twerking politics and they think that's some weird Gematria thing and everyone's (laughs) going nuts. You guys are thinking too much. We're just here for the fun. Okay? We're banging hoes and saving souls. That's what we're doing here. But enough of that. Let's get to the show. Uh, I was contacted by this gentleman about interviewing a very interesting doctor. This doctor has gone through a lot to try to change the game in treatment. As you know, I struggle with drugs and alcohol myself. I have uh, some time together. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Uh, I think uh, treatment is a, it's become an industry, and it kind of sucks because sometimes if you don't have the resources to get the help, you might fall through the cracks. Uh, joining us is Mauricio Gavani. Gavani, did we get it? Uh, kind of Marcelo Guayana. Okay, you messed I that messed one up. That was Don't me. give it to me. Okay, don't put that on my record. My record's already <laughs> zero in a thousand. Uh, he contacted me about getting on this wonderful doctor who spent his whole life and his freedom to try to change the way we look at. Uh, he's with the very t- the very interesting, who has an alternative look at how to deal with treatment, Dr. Kishore. How are you, doctor? I'm doing good, Sam, and um, it's a great pleasure to be here today. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for coming on our little uh, show. Uh, hopefully, we'll let people know about all the great work that you've done. So, um, you've worked in prisons, with addicts, I think uh, I personally have a real problem with our drug laws. We know that Nixon bragged about drugs. Our drug laws would, uh, you know, it was basically used as a weapon against the black community and hippies. And uh, I think drug laws are just like prostitution laws. They're basically just used to hurt poor people. Uh, we see pharmaceuticals and sugar dating. Those are done by rich people, and they don't go to jail. We have drug laws and prostitution. We're going to focus on drugs, of course. Uh, I feel like drugs, you shouldn't go to jail for drugs. I think you should go to treatment. I think if I do drugs, I'm only hurt myself. Jail should be for violent crimes and stealings. Uh, what have you seen in the system when dealing with addiction? What is something you learned while working with addicts in our prison system? Uh, the, the vast majority are there for uh, small stuff, uh, smoking marijuana on the street corner to possession of, uh, you know, whatever they're using. 60 to 70% of the people there are there for petty crimes. 
that need not even be called a crime. It's a, it's a travesty of justice. The prison population during my time there from 1979 to 92 went from like 2,000 people to like 29,000 people. Uh, it's, a, it's a mass incarceration, that's what we call it. It's a mass incarceration which is unneeded, not needed. And you know, so this Dr. Kishore at the age of 29, uh, going into each different prison in Massachusetts and actually helping people inside instead of most doctors who actually just sit in their office and stroke their chins. Dr. Kishore is a very unique doctor. He went against the status quo. He went against big pharma. And uh, that's what makes him really different. Marcel, how did you find out about the doctor? What made you so interested in his work, and how did you learn about him? Yeah, so he actually came to my school back when I was going to UMass Boston. Um, he came with a speaker that actually gave a talk about the dangers of GMOs and Monsanto. Whoa. So Dr. Kishore was there helping that speaker, and uh, we started talking, and we exchanged numbers, and then I was just fascinated by his story. So it's pretty much like a movie. His whole story is unbelievable. You know, we have the crime bill of 1994, the Clintons. We we actually see this somewhat, this kind of uh, dark arts movement um, where we see in the late 80s, early 90s, this shift from the, the popular music, which is like rap, it's called, right? Where you have Public Enemy doing positive black community rhymes to this, what they call crime rhymes, which is NWA, all these gangbangers, all this uh, glorifying street life. And at the same time, on the other side of the coin, the white coin, let's say, we see this move from uh, rock and roll to grunge. Grunge is very much um, all about heroin abuse, being like depressed, being sad. And right after that, we see the crime bill of 1994, which uh, helps just basically explode the prison population due to drugs, in particular the, uh, the black males destroying the black family unit. Um, did you were you working in the prison system during this time, and did you see this slowly happen, doctor? I started working in 1979 and uh, was there till 1991, so it's a little bit before the crime bill. But I saw even then, uh, I saw the numbers grow exponentially. Uh, we, we had a smaller prison population in the 1980s. Then by 1990s, it really exploded. You, uh, you have a model for treatment. And, you know, as somebody who deals with treatment, I, I didn't have insurance for the longest time. I, I didn't, I didn't, you know, I, I was, I couldn't afford to go to rehabs. The blessings is that AA, I never have to give a dollar you know, you'd give it out of thankfulness for them letting you sit down and talk to other alcoholics. But you created your own your own program, 19, 1989, breaking off from the regular system, achieving 50 to 60 percent successful rate of patients staying sober more than a year, uh, over 30 times more effective than the mainstream treatment. Uh, what is your what is your process compared to mainstream process? It's availability, access. Um, same-day service, treatment on demand, and uh, uh, harm avoidance, not just harm reduction, but harm avoidance. So we gave everything in, into one primary care practice. One-stop shopping is the key, continuity of care so that people don't fall in the cracks, 
They can call the doctor any time of the day or night. If they needed help in the home, so we went to homes to see them, talk to them. We had teams of people. See, I went to the Harvard School of Public Health where I trained in uh, community medicine and uh, community practice. So I'm different from other doctors who stay in their offices. I enjoyed going to the community, seeing what their needs are, taking care of them right then and there where they are at. That's the key. The treatment on demand and uh, harm avoidance, not just harm reduction. We don't use harm, uh, redu I mean, harm reduction for our cars. We don't want a bumper scratched or a, a rear end busted. Or we we have to have the same philosophy for our human beings who are sitting in front of us. So we taught them a lot of technologies. We made made ourselves accessible. It's a lifelong care. People don't have to go anywhere else except to come to the primary care doctor. The only thing where continuity of care exists is in primary care. Everywhere else you go, you see a doctor, you get a piece of paper saying, this is my opinion, and then you go away. There's no responsibility for the care of the individual. The only place where there's a responsibility for the care of the individual is in primary care. So I set up 52 offices in the state where people can just walk in. If they have a need that moment, they can walk right in. And my name to fame is Home Detox or outpatient detox. So we don't send people away. We, we take care of them in our offices. See, for an addicted person, what they fear most is the withdrawal coming off the drugs. Getting on the stuff is easy, but getting off the stuff is hard. We made it easy for them to get off the stuff. We took care of their symptoms. We gave them comfort medicines. And within three to five days, bingo, they're you know off the hook. Once they're off the hook, you know we ran with the ball. We kept the sobriety going by testing and uh, blocking the cravings and create, you know, distracting the people. And then people, once they get past three to six months of uh, sober life, wow, they took off like a rocket ship. And in general, patients did all the hard work. I just uh, presided over the treatment and we reaped the benefits. So it is not that hard, it's not rocket science, it's low tech. You got to be meet the people where they are. You cannot stigmatize them, you cannot say, you bad person, go away. You got to you got to embrace them and work with them. That's my 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 model. What is the what is the biggest problem you see with mainstream treatment? Uh, I I think it's gotten too much about money, and I have no problems with like my dad taught me a long time ago. Never hate a uh, anybody for making a dollar, but sometimes I wonder if that trumps actually helping people. Uh, do you do you think what is the biggest problem with mainstream treatment right now? The biggest problem is fragmentation. Everything is broken down. Uh, the detox is done by one group of people. Then they have no other uh, care or responsibility for the patient. Then they send them to a rehab center where they do one or two weeks, and then they they have no response for the patient. The poor patient have to fend for themselves. And sometimes they don't have the will and wherewithal to do it. It's a very complicated insurance system. The third-party reimbursement is uh, very, very hard to uh, figure out. Even for doctors, it's very hard to figure out how many days, how many slots. We, we, we demolish the whole system by putting them into primary care. Primary care is cheap dollars. There are two types of uh, money in insurance medicine. One is a mental health piece, and the other one is the primary care piece. The mental health piece is very expensive medicine. 
and people just get uh, doled out a few visits, you know, here and there with the insurance company. Whereas primary care is lifelong, but it's cheap dollars. It's a fifteen dollars, thirty dollars per visit. So I put my bucks on treating them in primary care rather than the specialty realm. So then my patients had continuity of care. They can reach out to me any time of the day or night. Night. That made the huge difference. They were able to call me before they, in the slip, before they slip and slide, we caught them. So we were able to steady them, give them a helping hand, and they, they took off like a rocket ship from there on. So it's just the initial initial few few weeks to few months is, is, is critical. And that's where we were there for them every day. When you, uh, when you study drug addicts, doctor, is there a common th- uh, characteristic with them? Is there something that they all have in common? You know, I hear a lot of people, uh, there's stuff about their childhood, you know, the traumas of dealing with that. Some people keep reliving over and over and over again ch- past childhood traumas. For me, I just really liked the party. I just really liked it. But was there one thing that drug dealers tend to have in common? Was there something that, you know, if you saw this, you'd be like, oh, I bet you that guy had problems with drugs or anything like that? Um, I call addicted people uh, accidental tourists. See, (laughs) people can get into addiction any which way. My youngest patient was like eight years old. The oldest was a 93-year-old Harvard doctor. Whoa. So people... People can walk into addiction by way of most accidentally. People try to fix themselves. One, one common theme I see is self-medication. Uh, people might have irritable bowel, right? Um, they, they, their stomach is grumbling all the time. They go to the doctor. Doctor gives them medicines that don't work. But once they take a little bit of OxyContin, the, the stomach grumblings go away. They feel like you know they don't need to look for the nearest bathroom. So then it becomes a habit. So self-medication is very high in the addicted community, partially because it's a medic- medical failure, med- uh, physician failure. The physicians who are seeing them since childhood, for it, they're not recognizing the problems and giving them the right help. So people try to say, okay, my doctor didn't fix me, I'll fix myself. So uh, the other common thing is uh, asthma is very common. Uh, most of my asthmatics are police officers who stand in the duties outside. They take a medicine called Altram, which is a highly addictive, but they don't have the breathing problems anymore. So self-medication is very common, medical problems. Uh, Crohn's disease, another problem. Of course, the back pain and the leg pain and the different kind of aches and pains people experience. They can either get treated by proper doctors with proper procedures or they can chew up a little oxycontin or a little heroin and then they feel good so opiate drugs fix every problem in, in the in the world they're called cure all they cure everything they can cure the headache they cure, can cure uh, uh, premature ejaculation they can cure premenstrual cramps uh, they're, they're, they're the solution for everything so when the, when there is no good doctors in in the loop that's what people do. What do they do? They have to live their life 24-7. The doctors are there like a quick snapshot. You don't see them again. And then they go to the local, uh, hey, what do I do for, for these aches and pains or my, my cramps? And suddenly they get a pill and next thing you know, they're hooked. So this is what's happening out there. The lack of medical care is the prime problem for addiction. 
Well, also, we're finding out now that these these pharmaceutical companies are bribing these doctors to to basically prescribe these drugs in mass quantities, all over prescribe. I I remember um, when I was young, I used to have bad acne on my back and. You know, I was doing some research, and there was—I forget what the the drug was that they used on your back. Aaron, do you remember what it was? What? Okay, I don't know what I can't hear you, but the point is Accutane, maybe Accutane. Yeah, Accutane, and yeah. I just read that Accutane was like having some serious negative effects. Well, I went okay. to the doctor, and I, I forget what I was looking at, but he commented on my back knee, and he's like, "You have." nasty back knee it's like really bad and it's only going to get worse he's like i think you should try accutane and i'm like wow man i mean more and more research is coming out that that's not good in fact that this guy pushed it on me have we got away from actual health sure i mean in doctors taking care of patients and gotten to the point where like we're just drug dealers in lab coats pushing product for cash that's right. I think, you know, both sides of the aisle are uh, the same. One is legal, the other one is, uh, you know, sort of illegal. Uh, the doctors are, when they go into medical school, they're groomed by the pharmaceutical companies uh, to be prescribers of medicines. Doctors technically have three responsibilities to prescribe a medicine to cure a problem, to proscribe, and to prohibit. The doctors have to use all three um, powers they have most of them only think they can prescribe a medicine and uh, that's the beginning, middle, and the end. But they don't talk to the patients enough. They don't try to resolve issues. So this is where the, the, the problems are stemming from, lack of good medical care. Would you jump in a little bit? Talk yeah. about the doctors being groomed as salespeople. Um, I mean, the biggest difference, though, with Dr. Shore is that he never prescribed any methadone or suboxone. Right, that's one of the biggest difference. He always spoke against uh, the methadone industry here in Massachusetts, and that's where he really started getting attacked. So he was even willing to write articles against the methadone clinics here in Massachusetts, and he would get calls from Big Pharma, which would subtly threaten him, right, and say, hey, you need to take back those statements. Every single time, Dr. Kishore was like, fuck you, I'm not taking that back. This is what I believe in. You know, that's very right. Um, the the power of, um, you know, I did not realize. I wrote an editorial one time. Uh, see, it's, it's not drugs that are good or bad. It's the, you know, it's, it's just like the guns. It's not the guns that are bad. It's the people who don't know how to use it right. So same thing with medicines. You know, methadone could help a pregnant female deliver a baby safely. There is uses for it. You've got to use the right dose at the right time. Uh, for the right amount of period of time. Uh, this is this is where the knowledge is important. Doctors have to sit with the patient. So methadone is what they give for pregnant females so the baby is not withdrawing in the belly. But they, they have to take it down very slowly. By the time the baby is born, the baby should be drug-free. Otherwise, the, the state will take it away. Even though they have prescribed it, they, they, they have you know, power and control to take the baby away. What? And the baby now is addicted. So now we've got the mom addicted, the baby addicted, the baby is taken away from the mom's arms. Oh my the mom God. is in a lot of psychic pain and she's crying all the time. And, you know, the baby is not bonding right. Oh. So these are the problems that we are creating for ourselves. 
it should be common sense, right? Like, why are we giving opioids to people that are addicted to opioids, right? No one talks about the effects of methadone, but we can get into that. It's all suppressed by mainstream media. If you look on Google, you won't find anything about it. You, you just, the first page, if you type in how much methadone makes, the first page on Google is pretty much just a bunch of academic articles about the benefits of methadone. Then you go on DuckDuckGo, you type in the same thing, how much methadone makes, you actually find like good articles exposing the corruption behind methadone clinics and how they're just trying to profit off of addicts, which just mostly comes from taxpayer dollars, right? I mean, we should all be like enraged, but no one really talks about methadone and the suboxone industries at all. You were talking about, I believe when we were having a conversation, that I, I believe, or, or maybe it was a different kind, that methadone was only meant to be a quick fix to get you off it. And now it's like people are on it for like years and years and years and years. Exactly. Yeah. Well, at first, I don't know if you know the history of methadone. It was started by the Nazis oh, during World War II. It always II, starts by out, the Nazis. They, they ran out of morphine. Right. So they had to give all their soldiers methadone, but it really took off in the U.S. during the Nixon era. So during the time that all the U.S. soldiers were coming back from Vietnam, a lot of them were using heroin in Vietnam. Uh, but the mainstream narrative was that all of them came back and continued using heroin, which was completely false. Only five percent of the U.S. soldiers kept on using heroin, mostly because they reconnected with their families. They couldn't. Did we lose him? Narrative. There was a huge push to open up methadone clinics. Well, I mean, what we're seeing right now is like if you watch television, right? Uh, how, what percentage of commercials are for a pharmaceutical drug? A, a large part. A large part. You get at least one for every show. I think there's probably, probably like two or three yeah, for every at least show. For sure. That'd be once every commercial, every commercial break. And you're like, why is this commercial there? Who has gone to the doctor going, hey, doc, I saw that commercial where the girl's running in a, a flower dress through what the fields of wheat. And it was about uh, a, a depression. I, I wanted, It said I should ask you about that. Has anyone ever done that in the history of time? No. What is that about? That is about controlling the message. So they buy all of these commercials so that if the news on that channel decides to run a story of, about big pharmaceutical, they'll threaten to pull all of their ads off. And everybody freaks out. And they don't want to do it. And that's, got, that's where we are right now. We're at a place where there's no real discussion about what's going on with big pharmaceuticals. I mean, the, the, the explosion... In heroin production, I mean, opium production and opium abuse has gone nuts. It's skyrocketed since we invaded Afghanistan because we were told that these hijackers from there, and it's not even true. Why were we in Afghanistan? Well, the Taliban wanted to burn pop. They burned poppy fields. They they declared them outlawed. So we had to send our troops in now to protect them for big pharmaceuticals. Are we... why isn't there a discussion about what's going on in, with, with drugs in this country? You know, I applaud you. I think what you're saying is so true. Um, the, the power and control of people is so much. When people are on drugs, they're like slaves. They're like a voluntary slave for the system. 
and human beings are becoming a commodity. Human beings should be cherished. A human human beings should be lifted up. But instead of that, they're being suppressed to the into the into into the ground by these uh, drug cartels. You know, if you come to Boston, we'll show you a place called the Methadone Mile. Maybe my, my it's pretty much a zombie apocalypse there. It's right next to one of the biggest hospitals here in Boston, the Boston Medical Center. None of the people there, police, the doctors, they don't care about anything going on. There's literally people shooting up in broad daylight right underneath the hospital. You can just see that as you're driving by. There's stabbings. Uh, you can see the long lines of methadone clinics because they're everywhere. Because in reality, communities and the people inside communities, they don't like methadone clinics being set up in their communities. It, the crime rate increases. The uh, I mean, people that are on methadone, they can just sell that for their, their, their drug of choice, right? Uh, no one talks about that either. And the huge relapse rate on methadone as well, or the fact that it's harder to withdraw on methadone than it is to withdraw on heroin. So that's really one of the main reasons that people stay on it forever. The heroin is water-soluble, and it comes out of the system in four to eight hours. But the, the withdrawal is pretty acute. They feel sick, very sick. It's like a bad case of flu uh, multiplied by 10 times. That's how heroin withdrawal is like. Whereas methadone is fat-soluble. It stays in your fat depots for, forever for 30, 40, 60 days. So they don't even know when the methadone finally leaves the system. They feel like falling off the cliff. So nobody ever tries to get off methadone uh, because of the erratic way that the drug leaves the system. A lot of, people have to be informed consumers. People have to be informed before they get it on methadone, this is what you're going to face. Instead of that, young people uh, are being suckered into joining these clinics saying it's a cure. And poor people, they can't get off. They can't get a job. The system also is very harsh. They got to go to the clinic at 5.30 in the morning, stand in line uh, for almost an hour, hour and a half, get their dose. They don't see a doctor, they see a nurse and they get their dose and then they they get the whole dose in the morning. Say for example, we eat 1800 to 2000 calories a day. We can't get the whole calories in the morning. If we get everything in the morning, we are, we are, we are obtended. We feel like zombies, you know. So we, we, we parcel our food 40% in the morning for breakfast, 10% calories in the afternoon for lunch, light lunch, a little bit of a snack in the evening and then a a full supper in the night. So instead of that, the chemical meal for the addicts are doled out first thing in the morning. So they get the whole dose for the day in the morning. That's 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 acidine. You can't do that. You got to split the dose like two or three times. So for, if you ask a heroin addict, they'll tell you, Doc, I got a 10 bag a day habit. I take four bags for my wake up and one bag or two bags for my, you know, after lunch. When my, do my, my levels are falling down, they know, they're scientists. They know the, how to manage their body. And then they take the last dose around 4 or 5 o'clock. Yeah. Then, they, then they go into, you know, go to sleep and then they start the whole process again. So for the chemical meal, they take 40% in the morning and the rest of it spread out throughout the day. So they know how to manage their habit. Whereas when it comes to methadone, you're getting the whole... 200 milligrams or 300 milligrams in the morning. It's like 10 meals, 10 chemical meals. They don't need that much dose in the morning. But the way it's dispensed. 
All right. I, and uh, the fact that it only has a two to five percent success rate of uh, recovering addicts staying sober for more than a year, compared to what you just said, Doctor Kishore's statistics of fifty to sixty percent, right? That's thirty times better. That's that's incredible, right there. Everyone should be trying to study from Doctor Kishore's system or trying to implement his model in different states. Do you believe <laughs> that the end result that they want is to get you? Because they're collecting all the way, but. Is the end result to get you on methadone and keep you on methadone? Because you get hurt, yeah, you take Oxycontin. Your your insurance runs out, and now you're finding a cheap version is heroin. And then you're like, I'm addicted to heroin. I need to get off heroin. Oh, I'm being told that it is um, it is uh, 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 methadone's going to cure that. Is that the is that what they really want to get you on in the long run? These evil scientists, these evil doctors, uh, the who the big pharmaceutical companies. Is that the real end result? Was it ever about curing anybody, or was it just getting a a patient for life? You're you're right on the button there. I think uh, the the goal is cure. We got to put our money up front, help the young man or young woman. You know, get well and move on with their life. Everybody can get snagged on the rosebush of addiction. It could happen to you, me, anybody. You know, nobody is uh, immune to addiction. It could happen by taking chemicals. It could happen by taking, I mean, doing sexually increased, you know, like physiological things like sex and the food. It could happen by process addictions like gambling and internet. Or it could be just the obsession. You know, these could happen to all of us. Everybody in this universe is equally vulnerable. But the poor, addicted people, you know, once they get on these drugs, there's no let. There's, it's a dead-end street for them. They cannot progress up in their life. They cannot uh, get into a job market. They cannot uh, have a family because who wants to bring a child who is addicted? So we have problems here with the policy issues. The policies are all wide wrong. They are not meant to help people, but to hurt people. And we got to reverse this course of history, or we lose our young people, because addiction is a young adult disease. The youngest addicts are around puberty, like 12, 13, that's when they pick up, when they want to leave the family constellation and get to peer constellation, they got to fit into the peers. So that's when they pick up their first drug or drink. And then if they put it away, you know, youthful hijinks, they're fine. But if they keep on using it by 17, 18, 19, seven years, they become addicted. And now they can't get a scholarship, they can't get into school. Clinton passed a rule, if you are addicted, you cannot get student loans. Yep. So automatically, door starts closing, door starts closing everywhere. Yeah. So they're boxed into this little uh, island of, uh, uh, what do you call this, evil, evil, evilness. And so the federal government actually incentivizes states to open up more methadone clinics by giving each state hundred millions of dollars if they do actually like open up more methadone clinics. Right? It's ridiculous. It is. It's it's oh. offensive. It's a it's elitist making money off the sorrows of the masses, the pain and suffering of the masses. We see this through bribery. We see people turning an eye to what's the right thing to do because they want to collect a check, okay? And when you die, at the moment, you, right before you die, you're broke as shit because you can't take money with you. And how you treated the rest of your people is how you'll be seen in the afterlife. I really do believe that. 
I really do. But the energy you put out is the energy you give back. Guys, if you guys can hold one second. I have to use the restroom. We'll do a cut. Hold one second. He's really got to go. Look at his, look. He's got all this drinking going on. Yeah, more water. You know what time this is, Aaron? Yeah, really good. What's the youngest patient you've had that's gone through your treatment? Doctor. Mm-hmm. Hear me? What time is that? 36. I already, already okay. asked him. All right, we'll fix that. I already sent it to your phone. Gentlemen, my apologies. That's never happened in history this t- show. <laughs> so uh, we'll just pick it up and we'll edit it. Um, so we see with privatized prisons, um, this note, you know, it was on John Oliver, the, uh, the show on HBO, in which they kind of read the press release of these privatized prisons and how they bragged about how uh, they were going to get repeat customers. The prisoners were going to come back at a rate of like 95%. They were, they were somewhat bragging about it. Is this system we have? of putting felonies on people for, for victimless crimes. All done to set up so it's impossible for them to get into the workforce. That's what's happening. You're absolutely right. I think, you know, see, keep in mind, um, we, they're going after the young adults, you know, who are in the prime of their life. Normally, a society is like a pyramid. There's a lot of babies being born, which is good. The babies are the future of the country. And then the older people are living to their senescence. In between is a strong oak of young people. Now the young people are in, are in uh, prisons. Uh, who is going to take care of the babies and who is going to take care of the elderly? You know, elderly need help and babies need protection. And this is where we are going to see problems in, in, in the next few years. I call it a tsunami of uh, 2025. By 2025... You know, we won't have enough young people to take care of the little fellas or the older people. So we need working steps to take care of them. They need, we, they need, we need people who are in the workforce. And when you don't have that, the society will have problems. This is called the hourglass society, you know, like an hourglass instead of a pyramid. The middle is thinning out. The uh, 190 people who are dying every day, the median age is 28. The people who are dying are the young fellas. The older people have learned their lessons. They're, they're living their full life, more or less, 74, 76. The babies, of course, are being born, but uh, there's nobody to take care of these uh, people. We've got a society that is um, uh, not really the parent. You know, you can't parent, so society cannot parent a child. And society cannot put all these older people into warehouses where they're all, uh, you know, getting cared for by some person who cannot even speak English. So we have social issues, and I think the people like you should speak up. This is not just an isolated problem. It's a nationwide problem here. And all of us are getting affected. 
I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. I I think it's ridiculous that a felony stays with you for your entire life. I think there should be a certain period in which you've worked off to show that you've done a good job, uh, that you've been on good behavior, and it should go away. Obviously, if you murdered somebody, I I don't think that should go away, or or, or, or hurt a child in a, a sexual way, that should go away. But, I mean, certain things should go away. I, I, I'm also of the belief that they give younger women shorter sentences so that they can get out and have children. These children are born to parents with felonies, and it makes it even harder for them to uh, be able to provide for their children. So we're seeing a... Uh, so these kids are almost born with two strikes against them, so now they're in the system too. And it's all about filling up those privatized prisons, filling them up so that, so that these people at the top are making money uh, on the heroin, on the methadone, and on the prisons at every single moment and making it impossible for people to get out of this and break this cycle. You yourself have had to dealt with j- jail. Uh, you were arrested in 2011. What were you arrested for, sir? Well, um, they... they I was seeing about 250,000 patients. See, in our in our state, you know, um, we have 10% addiction rate. We have 6 million people. That's about 600,000 addicts in the state. And I was spe- seeing about a third of them in my practices. I, I was g- gaining territory, which is what they didn't like. So they foisted a charge saying that I gave a kickback to a sober house to get patients. I didn't need patients. People were coming on their own. But that's the charge they, they foisted on me. And um, I wanted a speedy trial, but they delayed the trial by four years. They would not come to the trial because they didn't have any good evidence to show that I have uh, bribed anybody. And I think Marcelo can tell Yeah, I mean, he had dozens of police officers at his door, even helicopters. What? Right? They, <laughs> yeah. Helicopters, yeah, and they took him to jail right away. This guy's helped more than a quarter million people suffering from addiction, and they just took him in. So he was honored by the Boston Celtics. He got the Hero Among Us Award by Paul Pierce and Ray Allen. You can see pictures of him on the Celtics website. There's a lot of articles actually took down shortly before his arrest, which we can also get into, Uh, information on Wikipedia, which was shortly before his arrest but he's received so many awards which the media completely tried to ignore the attorney general tried to ignore and the attorney general martha coakley is the one that first arrested dr gishore in 2011 such a crooked politician you you can talk a little yeah. bit about martha yeah i think you know the the name of the game is right i was a successful company i was growing i started with one office in 1991 by 2011, I had 52 offices across the state, and people were inviting me in, the mayors of the small towns, the moms, local moms. We want something different from the methadone and suboxone clinic. We want a sobriety clinic. And I was providing them that, and they were coming in droves, 800,000 brand new people a month. It's, it's like a river of sobriety here. We were taking care of them in a, in a healthy, elegant way. Uh, we did drug testing to make sure they're you know, speaking the truth, we followed up with them. We gave them access to housing. We get house, uh, access to where it is for the services. We are rehabbing them and putting them back into the mainstream of society. Sure. But it affected the, the the downstream people, people in the rehabs. Their beds are not getting filled. The saying always is, "Follow the money." Uh, 
we were doing it on the cheap, you know, for for 30 million bucks. You know, we were providing care for what the state was doing for $4 billion. The state was spending $4 billion and not showing any results. I was showing results. In primary care, as I said, the monies are small, but uh, the effect is enormous. If we do it right, the primary care can really solve many problems. And that's what uh, I did. Mine is not, nothing, nothing, you know, no rocket science here. It's simple, good care, which every doctor should give. And that's what produces results, you know, helping patients stay with them when they're sick, you know, when they're coming off the drugs, when they're throwing up, giving them a shot of uh, Zofran so that they don't throw up. And the muscles are very stiff and, you know, they're unable to bend. They give them a little comfort medicines. By doing the small things, we achieved big results. For an addicted person, the withdrawal is like a big bugaboo. They, they, they're scared about it. For a doctor like me, I can do it in my sleep. So there's a lot of people that he angered leading up to this from the time yep. that he started his clinic. Like I was saying, there was a big pharma, the methadone clinics that called him up, got mad at him for writing articles exposing them. And then he would also talk about some of the drug testing labs here in Massachusetts, which are just like there to make a t- just by seeing uh, recovering addicts, and it all comes from taxpayer money. The difference between Dr. Kishore is that he rolled back his money into his practice, into his clinics, in order to help more, in order to help more people, improve his practice. Right, that was the biggest difference. But he was angering all the the, the drug testing labs here. He was stealing business from them. He was so successful. A lot of people got jealous leading up to this. So there's a lot of signs of collusion with the attorney general and some other individuals which try to set up a sting operation against Dr. Kishore in 2009. Unbelievable. In 2009, they try to bribe Dr. Kishore. There's this lawyer named David Perry who worked with the Attorney General, Martha Coakley, in order to try to take him down. So they set up this sting operation. Um, They try to bribe him. Right away, Dr. Kishore walks out the, the room. Right away. He's like, I'm not dealing with this. Um, so we know that this this lawyer, his name is David Perry, with his associate David Frum. David Perry owns a sober house, and David Frum owns uh, drug testing labs. So they would illegally uh, test uh, their residents and make so much money. And they were getting really mad at Dr. Kishore that he was so successful. So that's why they colluded with the attorney general in 2009 to set up that sting operation. The really uh, interesting thing about David Perry is he's such a crooked lawyer. He's an ex-recovering addict. He's a cocaine dealer. And what he would do at his sober house, he would actually give fentanyl and heroin to all the residents in exchange for sexual favors to young mill residents. So this was what this guy was doing. And this is who the attorney general, Martha Coakley, decided to collude with in order to try to take Dr. Kishore down. So these are some of the people that we're dealing with. They're sick people. Um, And so that's where it starts in 2009, but they failed. And then leading up to that, Dr. Kishore would get calls from his lawyers saying, hey, um, we received this message from the attorney general and we want you to uh, give up all your practice and let us control everything. They try to do that numerous times. This is Dr. Kishore's lawyer telling him this. So right from the bat, Dr. Kishore is like, fuck you, I don't need you. He fires him. He's like, I'm not giving up my practice. So they try to do this numerous times leading up to 2011 after this thing. When they finally realize there's nothing we can do, we're just going to arrest this guy and drop these fake charges on him. At the same time that a civil charge 
was also dropped on him. So it's important that there was a civil charge dropped on by David Frum. I just mentioned that. David Perry's associate. So David Perry and David Frum tried, uh, dropped a civil case on Dr. Kishore saying that he was um, engaging in unfair practices, monopoly charges, that he was pretty much stealing business from them in an unfair way. So the reason they, they dropped this civil charge on him was because it was attached to his bank account and all his 52 properties, right? And this was done at the same time that the criminal charge was dropped. That way, he wouldn't be able to defend himself. He couldn't hire any good lawyers because everything was frozen from the civil charge. Oh my! Right, and God. these are the same people that op- that did the sting operation in two thousand and nine. Right, so there's clear signs of collusion. Right, from you, you a good lawyer can actually approve. There's there's clear signs of collusion going on between the attorney general and this sick person, David Perry, who's thankfully he they arrested him finally in two thousand and eighteen for uh, giving um, uh, his, his residence at his sober house a ton of drugs in exchange for sexual favors. Finally, they decided to arrest him. But what's funny is that in 2015, Martha Coakley, right after she stepped down, she gave David Perry back his law license. So anyway, <laughs> much of this is told in a movie called Hero in America. I think uh, your audience should take a look at it. Hero um, in America? It's, it's like living inside a bad movie my whole life. Uh, so, that, Hero in America is the name of the movie. It's about you? And, yeah, it's about wow. the whole case and uh, my practice. Everything was detailed in... Uh, it hasn't come out yet, it's, so it's going to no- come out no- next year. November, late November release at Aiming Four. Uh, but I think the website is there and the, the movie clips are there. gives you an idea of uh, what I went through trying to help the innocent people who are somehow got addicted by the system. I, I didn't get into the politics of it. When somebody wanted help, I gave it to them. And that's how I made my name and fame, by being available to people. It's a very simple thing, being available. What's wrong with that? It's a primary care doctor can do it. I didn't see them as mentally ill. You know, I, I saw them as bright people with an IQ of 120, 140, Mensa class. They, because they're running the streets, you know, they're able to run, run an enterprise. But somehow they have to get off the stuff for whatever the reason, they want to do it. And I was available to them and I got them off the stuff. The really fascinating part though is right after they arrested him in 2011, you have to think about this, he treated a quarter million people. All those people are left without treatment because all his clinics are shut down. What do you think happens, right? The, the overdose rate just skyrockets and that's exactly what happened. So you had um, even the Boston Magazine here, they predicted this. They wrote an article shortly after Dr. Kishore's arrest titled, um, With Dr. Kishore's Arrest, A Feared Increase in Opioid Overdose. So by 2015, the opioid overdose quadrupled, right? Quadrupled already in four years. Part of that was because of fentanyl coming in, but we can also see a direct correlation with the communities, uh, the clinics that Dr. Kishore's, uh, the, the clinics that were located in Dr. Kishore's communities having um, the opioid death skyrocket, right? Because his clinics were shut down, so thousands of people were left without treatment. So we can owe this all to one individual, which is the attorney general here in Massachusetts, Martha Coakley. So literally, she had thousands of lives rest on her shoulders because of one person's actions. <laughs> My goodness. And it's just like, like I always say this, man, when, when when the government comes to crack skulls on freedom, they always send the cops. The cops come and 
I don't know how cops go from wanting to protect and serve to being thugs and doing something wrong. I think our legal system has a real problem with corruption, prosecutors who are just more concerned about their their record than doing right. It's like a, we consistently say people would rather be right than do right. And that's a big problem we have here. Egos get in the way. So we're sending law enforcement to your house. We're kicking in doors. We're, we're arresting a doctor trying to help people. What is the purpose of all this? Where does it go? Why do the good guys always get screwed with? Why do we encourage psychopaths? Why do we re- reward psychopaths? This seems to be the thing. And it all gets down to they just get us all fighting with each other. That's all it is. We're all fighting over scraps. Okay, why they collect big fat checks and we're fighting with our peers and our 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 neighbors all the time when we should be helping each other and loving each other. You know, these your children, these children, anybody listening, your kids could be the ones that are hooked on methadone. But, you know, it's all about collecting checks. And so and you know what, man, how much is enough money? How much? This family that basically invented Oxycontin. Like, how much is enough money for you to realize you did something wrong and try to do something right? It just goes on. And then you got these guys. You see it in that Stephen Avery doc. They know they arrested the wrong guy. But now now their egos are so strong and they know there's going to be a giant lawsuit at the end that they won't do what's right, which is let this guy go. You, you, you're, met, you're taking the wrong people to jail, okay? CEOs should be in jail, not doctors helping people naturally get off drugs. So you go to prison. What was that like, being in prison for helping people? When everyone was talking about, oh, what'd you do? I murdered somebody. What'd you do? I kidnapped somebody. What'd you do? I, I help people. Like, what, what was that like? You know, uh, it's interesting because... Um uh, many of my uh, people there are my my patients in the practice. They were like a little posse who were with me 24-7, protecting me, helping me. And I think, um, in a way, I saw I saw the prison system as a medical director from the top down. I saw them as a doctor treating, sitting across from um, the incarcerated people one-on-one. Now I saw it from the bottom up as a, as a prisoner myself. And uh, it was, you know, an experience of a lifetime. I'll tell you the eight months and four days I spent there. What they made me do is do street sweeping in front of my own hospitals. Oh, so I had to do the God. sweeping. After he got out of jail, they made him do community service with a hurt knee at the age of 65. They would pay him $3 an hour to pick up trash. $3 a day. $3 a day, I'm sorry. <laughs> wow. So... So in 2015, though, um, they finally had enough of them because he fought the state for four years by himself. They finally said, all right, we're going to drop 76 charges on this person. So we talked about Martha Coakley, the attorney general. She stepped down, gave David Perry back his law license. Then comes in another attorney general, Mara Healy, which just continued her work. Finally, she dropped 76 charges on him, forced him to a plea deal. We actually got a chance to interview Mara Healy about Dr. Kishore. She didn't know she was getting filmed, and she calls Dr. Kishore a killer, right? Someone that treated a quarter million 
Hopkins didn't have one death. That's an incredible, incredible accomplishment for any doctor. She calls Dr. Kishore a killer, completely slanders it, him on, on in the interview, right? Yeah, keep in mind, you know, I didn't do it alone. I had 370 awesome people working for me. I had a huge staff. Without the staff, addiction is a labor-intensive work. You've got to work 24-7 uh, for, for uh, you know, without any let. So I had staff of 370, 29 doctors, 44 nurse practitioners. I had uh, awesome office managers who were very passionate. And none of them got charged, which is the really, really important thing. Only Dr. Kishore did. Right, because we all worked together as a team. You know, we had uh, legal help. I had lawyers watching over my practice. I had a uh, you know, variety of safeguards I took. I was on the board of Mass Health. I was uh, the advisory board. I was uh, uh, the you know gatekeeper for many insurance plans. See, when you're taking money from a third party, they're always there. Auditors are there every three three months, so not a single cent escapes their uh, purview. They like to watch over where they're giving the money. So I went through 37 different audits. So. There is no way anything can be goofed up. So I made it so... Because all of them passed, right? 37 yeah. audits leading up to this, he had a perfect record. The federal government said he's doing nothing wrong before this. But suddenly, 2011, the state charges him with criminal charges and a civil case as well. The only way can, they, they can do it is by bringing in the big guns, you know, attack dogs, 33 squad cars. Uh, it's like a show of force. You defied us, so we'll take. You know, we'll we'll show you what we can do. It's a it's a show of force. It's nothing to do with the crime or punishment or anything like that. And they still try to discredit him and weaken him in jail. So it's really actually interesting. First, they offer him protective custody, right? And he said, "Fuck you! I'm not taking protective custody, right? I can do this by myself." Then they try to label him as a snitch. Right. And oh that was completely false. God, and he really? was there by himself standing up to everyone. Right. He never he never he, he was always he, he's got such a strong character. I've never seen a guy like this. Um, and what, how else did they try to uh, discredit you? Uh, there was a couple of temptations. Away, you know, my, for a good time, I was finishing up my sentence early. They tried to push me into parole, which is a lifelong uh, ball and chain. Oh I said, no, I don't want God. it. I finished my sentence. There's no need for parole. The dates have already passed. So they tried to hobble me in 100 different ways. But I, I went through that, and luckily it's now four years after the the whole thing has now passed. Also, they try to make him see a in jail so they can label him as mentally ill. Right away, he knew what they were doing, so he said, fuck you, I'm not, I'm not seeing a psychiatrist. Right, this guy stood by himself. No one at his side. His lawyers betrayed him. Everyone betrayed him. The community betrayed him. But he stood by himself, coming out of jail stronger than ever, wow. as well. By the way, so the system is just like when they when it's got its eye on you, it's so hard. And then you have all these rich bastards just getting away with literally murder. And mm -hmm. when you try to help people, when you try to bring love into the world they assassinate you both either character or or, or on or real really like martin luther king you know what they did with gandhi how they just demonized that guy and now they're doing it with you and it's just like it's unbelievable to me that this happens in what is considered like the greatest nation ever and that stuff that's put on us when we have a we have a class struggle, a power struggle, where the elites just 
drop hammer on us all the time. And when someone tries to help, just help people. I mean, like, just imagine getting so mad at somebody because they were taking away one of your clients who happens to be a junkie and helping him get his life in, in uh, set up straight. I remember when, you know, Penn and Teller did a whole story on AA and then, you know, Charlie Sheen's like, only 5% of people, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, you know, it's like, I, if it wasn't for AA, I'd probably be dead. You know, it's like, why are we demonizing people doing this stuff? Why are we doing this? Why are we going after the good people? Why are we allowing good people who want to make change in the world? And why are we allowing the power structures to come in? Because they're corrupt and they're paid off of. It's like, how do you look yourself in the mirror, man? Knowing you're going after a doctor doing this. Like, your career, where do you think you go with this? At the end of the day, you got to look back. And you know what I really hate? Is when they do these confessionals with these people, whether they're FBI, CIA, and they're like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. It's like, you know, it's too late, dude. You put the energy out in the world. You got some dark arts waiting for you on the other side. So what are you doing now, doctor? Now that the, you're on your place and you've got your footing and you're, you're fighting back, what are you doing now? You're out of jail. You're stronger than ever. What are you doing now? Well, a couple of, couple of points I want to make, you know, as... See, addiction, we don't have one right answer, so we need multiple tools in our toolkit. AA is a great great meeting place for, for people to touch base and stay sober. We encourage that in our practice. It's a, it's, it's a good thing for people to be connected socially. You know, addiction sometimes go with social shyness. People who are addicted also are introverts. Me so too, that's to me. Be, yeah. Yeah, they need to be out there with the hustings with the people. It's a little bit socially painful, but then they get over it. They become one of the great great speakers after dinner. A lot of my speeches in the after um, you know having people together is by A people who give beautiful speeches because they learn to speak. So A is a good good tool. Uh, um, I think uh, you know um, there are many good tools like that. We've got to use the good tools for a good purpose. Um, so where it comes to the current system, currently what I'm doing is education, teaching, coaching, guidance, trying to rescue people. Uh, um, Marcelo can talk about a little bit about that. People are getting caught up in the web of uh, intrigue here between uh, uh, people in power, the, the drug cartels, and the people who are locally you know, pushing the drugs. The young, young women especially are getting caught. Yeah, I mean, no, he has an educational center in Maine, so he's doing a lot of work in Maine. He's getting some support from uh, local politicians there. Um, and um, so I was actually eating dinner with Todd Kishore a couple of weeks ago, and I'm like, hey, what were you doing over the weekend? And he's like, oh, I went to Baltimore to try to save a woman that got kidnapped by the MS-13. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, he goes, so he goes with a pastor, uh, the, um, the uh, young teen's parents, um, um, and they try to save her from the MS-13. They, the MS-13 got her addicted to fentanyl, I believe. And this is what he's doing, right? At, at, at the, the age of 70, can. he's yeah. going out to Baltimore and still doing this. And like I said, because he was going into communities, into prisons himself. He was rolling up his sleeves and doing the hard work and not just sitting at an office like most doctors that are all bought off by Big Pharma. Hey, boss, you said you need a lot of um, tools to treat um like to help people to treat addiction, addiction right? Uh, have you heard of Kratom? It's natural 
I, I used to smoke. I used to work at a smoke shop, and it's really expensive. But people would say it would help with opiate, uh, with the withdrawals. Is that? Have you heard of that? What do you think about it? Yeah, it does help, but uh, you know, people have to understand. Um, it is not, you know, uh, it's some. It, it has to be given proper doses, proper times. So doctors have not studied it well enough. So people are doing their own self medication for that. It helps. There's no two words about it. It helps people, and uh, you get eases the withdrawal symptoms. But there are also similar techniques that can be done by over-the-counter medicines. For example, we can take away many of the symptoms that exist when they come off the stuff with uh, over-the-counter medicines like nausea medicines and so on and so forth. Um, see, my philosophy is when you're coming, getting people off the drugs, you got to use the medicines neck down. Uh, I don't want to affect the sensory system, so I want to control the symptoms, but not letting them know what is causing the, the relief. So all my medicines are neck down, spinal cord, peripheral systems, so that they feel, wow, what happened? I'm feeling calm and you know nice, like old times, but they don't know what. If I give him narcotics, sometimes they ah, oh, I like this. This is just like the, the feeling I had, I liked. So we got to play it right. Certain times, you know, withdrawal symptoms are very high. We have to use narcotics in a very judicious way. You know, a lot of these narcotics have, you know, there's a good, they're double-edged source. There's a lot of good they do, but there's some bad they do too. So this is all a technique issue. So I've used narcotics for my patients. A few number of patients, one, one to ten, five percent will need the help of narcotics to get off narcotics. But you've got to do it in a very controlled setting either in the hospital system where I had privileges or in the emergency room, we give them a, a few little um, milligrams to jumpstart the recovery. Then we took them back into our clinics and we, so we got to mix and match the tools. There's no one right path. So we got to mix and match your toolkit. I think that's a wonderful point. You, sir, you know, we see a lot of uh, pharm- pharmaceutical pharmaceutical companies now putting out cures for problems they've caused and you know a lot of people want to take a very uh quick cut but anything that's worth anything is worth fighting for and that takes some work and i think the biggest thing you have to do is just learn how to mentally deal with this you know it's like there's so many people that i would thank for recovery but one person i really want to thank is myself and the will to want it, you have to sit there and you got to have the will to want to beat this. When the rubber hits the road, when the craving comes, to take contrary actions. So when you pop a pill, you're not really dealing with the issue. You're just kind of masking it. It's the will to want it and it's in each one of us. You know, People, you know, you talk about this girl who was kidnapped and thrown into MS-13 and, like, the world of shit people can find themselves into. But I really do believe we live in this magical world where you can control your destiny. You just have to learn how to take control of the controllers. And there's a million things going on. There's a million things going on. You know, I can focus on the fact that I've relapsed a lot, or I can focus on how many months I have now and how great that is and how the future is better. And it's stuff like that. So when you pop a pill or you take the stuff that he was talking about, those are great quick fixes, but you're still you. You know, when you move around, they call it a geographical, but you're still the same person. 
You have to deal what's going on in here and understand that you're good enough and you're you and you should love yourself. And there's nothing wrong with you're not defined by your past. Okay, what happened in the past? That you know, the truth of the matter is, the admission for success is truly failure. You have to fail enough to succeed, and your failures in the past happen because you need to learn those lessons. But I got to ask you, doctor, why do you do all this? Why do you care so much? Why do you put yourself in these situations where you could either be going to jail or dead? Why do you care so much? Uh, when I came to this country, I worked in a program called the Washingtonian Hospital. It was founded by George Washington and his wife, Martha Washington. That was the first time there was treatment for addiction in this country. Before that time, addicts were banished to faraway lands or put in prison or in mental asylums or put in the backyard and, you know, fed drugs every day. So I was able to read all the books that were there from the beginning of the country, uh, 1700, late 1700s, 1800s. And I realized, wow, this is something that nobody is really practicing here. So I, adopt, I, I call myself the last Washingtonian because I was the last medical director for the program. I realized that there is a path out. They, they, they cured Abraham Lincoln. He went to Washingtonian hospital and got cured of his alcoholism. Whoa. And uh, so we have many stories like that from mid mid 18th uh, mid mid 19th century, and I saw all of that and said, why can't we bring it back to life? So that's what I did. I started the then I saw the results when I saw the results in my practice with the home detox, sobriety maintenance, sobriety enhancement, and primary care. It's like I hit the jackpot. I I found the gold standard for care. So it became known as the, master's model by the National Institute of Drug Abuse. So my career was made. I, I succeeded where others have failed. And I didn't want to give up caring for my patients. You know, even after the incarceration, I still care for people. And a lot of them reach out to me and we guide them the best we can in a broken system. We need to talk about it, Sam. I think, you know, you spoke very eloquently. And I think we need people like us to network and to you know, get things moving in the right direction. Right now, we are in the in the edge of a precipice. If we don't pull back now, we don't know what what the future holds in another five ten years. The 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 the, the writing on the wall is somewhat not good or bleak. So we've got to reverse the course of history, and we need to talk about it. I could not slink away into a hole and pull the hole after me. I got to be out there at the hustings, talking to people, talking to pastors. Uh, I got appointed as the Minister of Health and Healing for many churches. So we need to bring the church folk back into the fold here. So they do what they are trained to do, which is to succor to the the soul of a person. Once, uh, like you mentioned, right, uh, once we know who we are, we move ahead. We are not defined by the past. So it's a simple technique. There's nothing rocket science here once again. we got to do what's right for our communities. And I was trained in that. I had skills in that. America is a land of business people. In business, we say, if you know the rules of the game, you win the game. So I won the game quite a bit. And I don't see why I should give up. Hey, well, you know what? Uh, real quick, as we uh, start to come to the end here, we have people who listen, who listen to this podcast who suffer from addiction and alcohol abuse. 
If they're listening right now, what is one thing you'd like to tell them that might put them in the right direction and maybe the first step to take to getting out of their own way and understanding they don't have to do this anymore? They don't have to numb the pain. They don't have to... They don't, they don't have to poison themselves anymore if it's no longer working for them. What would you say to these people? I say um, there's a lot of hope. H-O-P-E. You know, we have, as long as we don't give up hope, we move ahead. Uh, we walk through pain. We walk through obstacles. Uh, we don't give up on, uh, we got to believe in your, uh, ourselves, number one. Number two, there is, uh, there is hope, especially in addiction. In a primary care practice, if a person comes with diabetes or hypertension, they decline, 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 and die. Whereas with addiction, once they get sober, they're not only well, but super well. They're like good human beings. Some of the best friends I have are people in recovery. They really are, they seize their life with both hands. And they, they run with it. I'll tell you, they're some of the best people you can have, people in, in a healthy recovery. They're not only um, rehabilitated, but they're fully restored. And I've seen that happen. That's what gives me a lot of hope and courage to do this. I see there's a lot of hope. And the word hope is very important. Nobody should give up hope. My One of my cases is a, a 60-year-old um, man with a HIV and disease. The hospitals told him we are hopeless. So he didn't believe in it. He had only one T cell left in his bloodstream or something, small number. He was supposed to die, but he's, he had hope. So he never gave up hope. He became an, he was an insurance appraiser. He went around the globe uh, appraising oil fires. I saw him later still living. So a lot of doctors, when they give a prognostication, you, oh, you only live two months, three months, people defy the odds. So hope is the key, key ingredient of life. That is wonderful. Marcelo, I would like to give you a moment because you were kind enough to contact us and uh, set this podcast up. It's been wonderful. Do you have any final thoughts, yeah. my friend? Um, I think you sure said pretty much everything. One more thing uh, we forgot to mention is that methadone actually boosts female sex hormones in men. So you'll see breast enlargements, you'll see increased grooming behavior in men. So that's something people have to be wary of before they actually start taking methadone. Um, and another thing, even channels that we think are hip, like Vice Channel, you go on Vice Channel, they'll say methadone is the best solution. They have a whole video on that. So also do the research on methadone. Just don't listen to what Vice is saying or what Dr. Drew is saying. Uh, doctor, forgive my language, fuck Vice. I like old Vice. I don't like new Vice. They're bought and sold. They're no different than the people and the magazines and the newspapers that went after the doctor. You know? I mean, like, dude, I, screw Vice. Excuse my language, doctor. I didn't mean to swear in front of you. You're a shaman, my friend. Gentlemen, I can't thank you enough for coming on our little show. I know your movie's going to be coming out soon. When it does, we would love to have you guys back. Talk about this a little more. See if anything's progressed. See whatever other superhero acts the doctor's done. Uh, Dr. Kishore, I appreciate you so much. Marcel, I appreciate you guys so much for coming on. And uh, if you could tell them, uh, is there anywhere you want them to go check out? Any uh, social media, websites, or anything? 
you can email Dr. Kishore. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, very simple. I always respond to phone calls, text, or email. So my phone number is 617-953-8994. And my email is psk at pmai.net. And the website, you can check out the preventivemedicineassociates.net. Awesome. Thanks so much, Sam, for having us on. Thank you so much. Well, I loved it. I could talk to you guys all day, every day, all the time about this. I don't think people talk enough about it. I think, uh, you know, I've lost some friends this year. They were on pharmaceuticals or they couldn't deal with trauma in their life. And I think it's we got to stop being machismo, stop being tough guys, stop acting like we can handle everything and start talking to each other. And the best thing, doctor, is we got to have hope. Man, one year can change your life, man. I've heard stories of people who are eating out dumpsters. And next thing you know, they're directing their favorite TV show because they had hope. You got to have hope. You got to believe it's assimilation and you could change assimilation. I appreciate you guys so much. I'm going to get an email from you guys, get all the information on where they can contact. And uh, let's do it again, sir. And uh, doctor, I can't thank you enough for your service and the love of your fellow man for what you've done. So I appreciate you. Okay, guys? You guys have a great day, and we'll do it again soon. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sam. Take care, Thank guys. You. God bless. Love you guys. Take care. Aaron, <laughs> I love you today. This is so much hope in my heart. I love you too, Aaron. That's how much I love you. <laughs> he liked this episode. Take care, guys. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.